0: Archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 14, The Message of the Church. Our text is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Will you turn with me, please, to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians? and our portion for study this morning the fifth chapter verses 18 through 21 for our visiting friends may I remind you that we are pursuing our studies in this second letter of Paul to the Corinthians under the general title of God's call to church action the section is the fellowship of ministration we've been thinking of the trials and travels and target of the ministry. This morning, the very center of it all, the truth of the ministry. Now as we saw in our introduction to this epistle, chapters 5 and 6 contain the central theme of our Christian faith and of this particular epistle. God's call to church action is a call, first of all, to proclaim the word of reconciliation and then secondly to perform the work of reconciliation. We shall engage ourselves with the first part of that proposition this morning and God willing next Sunday the second. First then is the word of reconciliation or what we've elected to call the truth of the ministry. Now, as we observed in the immediate context last week, Paul has dealt very significantly with something of the costliness as well as the objectives of our ministry. But now he turns our attention to the very nature of our message and invites us to reflect on three considerations. And I can't imagine a passage more appropriate to prepare our hearts For the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. I can't imagine a passage more appropriate to prepare our hearts for the coming Christian Life Convention and the ministry of the Spirit through God's servants this coming week. So, will you follow with me as we take these three salient points and examine them together? First of all, what I'm calling the basis of this truth of reconciliation, the basis of this truth of reconciliation. Verse 18 All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. The apostle wastes no time in directing his readers to what is the fundamental and basic nature of our message in the gospel. And he tells us here that the basis of it is twofold. First of all, there is man's universal condition. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Tyndale, Cranmer, and the Geneva Bible have an interesting rendering of this. God was in Christ making agreement between the world and himself. Making agreement between the world and himself. The presupposition behind this statement is clear for all who have eyes to see. Man is at enmity with God. That's his universal condition. I care not where he's found, the East or the West. In the darkest jungles or the most civilized centers of the West, man is at enmity with God. The scriptures make it clear that sin is an act, a state, and a nature. And this leads us to discover how man is at enmity with God. Sin is an act in the sense of the violation of or disobedience to the revealed will of God. The Bible says sin is the transgression of the law. Sin by commission. Sin is an act by omission. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin therefore is an act. But sin is also a state in the sense of the absence of righteousness. How clear is the word of God on this point? It declares, there is none righteous, no, not one, or more literally, no, not a solitary one. There is none that doeth good, no, not a solitary one. Sin is an act, sin is a state, but supremely sin is a nature in the sense of enmity toward God. Paul tells us that the carnal mind is enmity against God. And James informs us that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, and he who would be a friend of the world is an an enemy of God. This, then, is the universal condition of man, outside of the reconciling grace of God. Man is at enmity with God. We live in a day when such truth as this, such facts as these are being rationalized or glamorized or criticized, but it remains a fact that man is at enmity with God, hence the need for reconciliation. And I repeat that without the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is doomed. I cannot who he is, what his background he is, what his culture might happen to be, man is at enmity with God outside of his reconciling grace. And only a serious view of man's sin can lead to a serious view of God's grace. So in these remarkable verses, Paul speaks not only of the basic truth of man's universal condition, but, praise his name, he speaks of God's universal provision. Verses 18 and 19... All things are of God who hath reconciled to us himself by agreement as we saw just a moment or two ago. And again, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their righteousness or unrighteousness rather to them. There is no passage in the word of God which elucidates more clearly the Ministry of Reconciliation as does this one. And I want you to follow me very closely here. With an eloquence and yet an amazing economy of words, Paul tells us that God is the author of reconciliation and that Christ is the agent of reconciliation. The initiative in the work of atonement is all on God's side. He has broken into history. He has identified himself with the stream of humanity. Instead of God being dead, he is involved. He's very much alive. He has come through from heaven of his own initiative and by grace into man's desperate need. I repeat, the initiative is all on God's side. It has nothing whatsoever to do with man. In the words of Archbishop Temple, all is of God. The only thing of my very own, which I contribute to my redemption, he says, is the sins from which I need to be redeemed. Nor indeed is the initiative from Christ's side, as some have taught. It isn't taught in this passage. Notice these next verses. Look at them very carefully. Paul is careful to point out that reconciliation is through Christ, verse 18, and in Christ, verse 19, but from God. He has taken the initiative. Or in Paul's lucid phrase, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. There was never a moment when God was not involved in the work of redemption. And then in the sequence of his unfolding of this truth, Paul leads us to contemplate the the awesome fact, the awesome fact that in order to accomplish this reconciliation, he, the sinless one, our Lord Jesus Christ, must be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Before sin as an act, as a state, or as a nature could be finally dealt with, he must be made sin for us. I know no words that sum this up as poignantly and relevantly and searchingly as some words I've come across from the pen of the Reverend John R. W. Stott, he puts it this way, having been made flesh in the womb of Mary, his mother, Christ was made sin on the cross of Calvary. God, who would not impute our trespasses to us, imputed them instead to Christ and made his sinless son to be sin for our sake. And then he adds How God who was absolutely holy could have been in Christ when he made Christ to be sin for us, I cannot say. We're here touching the ultimate paradox of the atonement. But Paul taught both and we hold both even if we cannot satisfactorily reconcile them or neatly formulate them. Here then, Is God's universal provision for man. A work of reconciliation effected once and for all. I repeat, effected once and for all. Reconciliation is not something which must now be effected. It was effected once and for all. Or as our fathers used to put it, Christ completed his work. It is a finished work. Young people, older ones here, listen to me, listen to me. In that midday, midnight, In that moment of dereliction, in that mysterious hour when the Son of God cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In a way I can never explain or plumb, He, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, was made sin for you and for me, that we in turn might be made the righteousness of God in him. Man's universal condition matched by God's universal provision. I wonder if I'm talking to someone here this morning and you've never realized that truth. You've never broken at the cross. That enmity in your heart atone for once and for all at Calvary, still exists in terms of experience because you've never seen the inner meaning of the cross. Oh, my friend, come to Calvary this morning. Kneel there and let that Calvary scene break your heart and with utter brokenness and repentance, turn to God through faith in Christ and be reconciled in terms of experience to a God who has already reconciled the world unto himself. Here then we have the twofold basis of this truth of reconciliation. Man's universal condition, God's universal provision. But now turn to Paul's second consideration here. What I'm calling the burden of this truth of reconciliation, the burden of this truth of reconciliation, God hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, and we are ambassadors of Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Now when we speak of the burden of this truth, we're using biblical language. In Old Testament times, the word was used again and again by the prophets to convey the thought, and I quote here, of a heavy, a weighty thing, or a message, or an oracle from God. When Isaiah saw a vision, he called it his burden. When Habakkuk opens his prophecy, he talks about the burden of Habakkuk. And I want us to see this burden in a twofold way this morning. First of all, what I'm going to call the word that we must preach. And secondly, the way that we must preach. Both constitute the burden, first of all the word and then the way. The word we must preach, the way we must preach. We've looked at the basis, man's hopeless condition, God's glorious provision. Now our burden is to make this known. By a word and by a way. Look at the word that we must preach. God could remind Jeremiah in his day that a man's word shall be his burden. Jeremiah twenty-three thirty-six. a man's word shall be his burden. And some of us who know the responsibility of preaching understand exactly what this means every time we rise to declare the word of God, there's a burden upon our hearts, a burden sometimes almost intolerable. And as we proclaim the message, we know that two elements exist in every message. One is the proclamation. The second is the invitation, and they're inseparable. Look at the two for a moment. We must never issue an appeal or an invitation without a proclamation. Much harm has been done to the souls of men. Much dishonor brought to the name of Jesus Christ because we've neglected this simple principle. All across this country today, men are being told to make decisions. Young people are being told to make decisions without any truth to back the decision. First the proclamation and then the invitation Writing to his son in the faith, Paul exhorted Timothy to preach the word in season, out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, teaching. In every authentic sermon, there should be a convictive element, reproof, a corrective element, rebuke, and then a constructive element, doctrine. Doctrine. So many of us, major in the first two, but minor in the second. And third, listen, doctrine. Doctrine. Let us never forget that in the New Testament, the conversion experience is invariably expressed in terms of response not so much to Christ but to truth. I quote, "The sinner is told to believe the truth to Thessalonians two and 10, to acknowledge the truth to Timothy 2:25. The truth. Man has to bow to truth. Needless to say, truth is never detached from the one who is the truth, but it's truth. Paul reminds his saints and friends away there at Rome that they they were molded into the truth that was once delivered unto them. So in our proclamation, we must ultimately give to people good reasons why they should believe and then leave it to the Holy Ghost to open their eyes to the evidence of that truth and to the verdicts claimed by that truth. Having said this much on the proclamation, we must not forget that the word which we preach also includes the invitation. We must never make the proclamation without issuing an invitation. Paul says, now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Where there's a proclamation, there's always an invitation. There are some people who don't understand this but it's absolutely true. No man has delivered his burden, no man has delivered his burden until in conversation or in declaration he has first of all dealt with the proclamation of the reconciling grace of God and then has claimed the verdict through the invitation, the appeal. It's interesting that in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was forever emphasizing this matter not only of invitation but of expecting results. In the three figures of speech that our Savior employed to illustrate effective evangelism, he always spoke of results. You remember that when he told Peter to be a fisher of men, he said, Thou shalt catch men, thou shalt catch men. A fisher's task is not to influence the fish, but to catch them. When our Savior spoke of the harvest fields, he said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, they're white all ready to harvest. And then in another place he said, expect the yield, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. When our Savior spoke of bearing fruit he said abide in me as the branch abides in the vine and fruit will be forthcoming. He said ye have not chosen me, I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, be visible, be tangible, be actual. The proclamation must be followed by the invitation, Our burden is the word of reconciliation. And that word is not only the proclamation of a God who's come through from heaven in grace and the person of his blessed Son in a salvation which is full and free, but it's an invitation to men and women to be reconciled to God. So much then for the word that we preach. But listen to me now concerning the way that we must preach. And here I must confess my own heart has been deeply, deeply searched the way that we must preach. Now we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God Professor Tasker reminds us that a minister of this word of reconciliation can most properly be described as an ambassador for Christ, a title both proud and humble. In other words, the way in which we preach the word of reconciliation must be characterized first by the authority of Christ, proud, the humility of Christ, humble. And both these thoughts are embodied in this concept of the ambassador. There must first of all be the authority of Christ. An ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. He doesn't speak in his own name. He does not act on his own authority. What he communicates is not his own opinions or his own demands, but simply that which he has been commanded to say. But at the same time he speaks with authority, but it's the authority of Christ. We're to persuade men in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. How anyone in Christ's stead can apologize for his message? How anyone in Christ's stead can be nebulous in what he says? How anyone in Christ's stead can be uncertain concerning the authority and infallibility of the word which he preaches is something hard to imagine. Jesus said to his disciples, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Men and women here this morning, we want to tell you that behind this sacred desk in every church that stands with us, we speak with an authority, delegated, derived, not our own, God forbid, not our own, but we speak in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. It's an authority not to apologize about It's an apology only concerning our own unworthiness but an authority which is from heaven in Christ's stead. The way in which we must preach, here is ultimate authority. Here is an authority which carries power beyond any ambassador from Britain from Russia or any other country. An authority which carries a greater mandate than from the president of our beloved country. An authority which cannot be equaled in any other strat of society, in any other profession, in any other calling. It's an authority straight from heaven, in Christ's stead, vested in the messenger of the gospel who stands for all of the gospel means. But with the authority of Christ, follow me very closely here, there is the humility of Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We're told that ambassadors are chosen especially for their tact, their dignity, and their persuasive powers. Ambassadors for Christ should know the same characteristics. Indeed, in this same epistle, Paul says in chapter 10 and verse 1, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, to my mind, this is one of the lacking distinctives in our gospel preaching today. It is bad enough not to know the authority of Christ, but even worse, not to exhibit the humility of Christ. In order to emphasize the importance of this way of preaching, Paul describes, oh listen to me, a pleading deity, a broken-hearted deity, a God on his knees before a sinner. I can't describe it, I can't understand it, but this is the concept. All the entreaty, all the longing, all the travail of a redeeming, reconciling God oppressed into this word beseech. And God beseeches sinners on his knees to be reconciled to himself. The authority, yes, but the humility, the humility of our God Alexander McLaren captures this thought in a most moving passage. I know nothing to equal it and so share it with you this morning. He says to sue for love, to beg that an enemy would put away his enmity is part of the inferior rather than that of the superior. It is part of the offender rather than the offended. It's part of the vanquished rather than that of the victor. It is part surely not of the king but of the rebel and yet here in the sublime transcending of all human precedent and pattern which characterizes divine dealing we have the place of the suppliant and the supplicated inverted And love upon the throne bends down to ask of the rebel that lies powerless and sullen at his feet, and yet is not conquered until his heart be won, though his limbs be manacled, and he would put away all the bitterness of his heart and come back to the love and grace which are ready to pour over him. And then he quotes from a great hymn, He that might the vengeance best have taken finds the remedy." I can't explain that. I can't plumb that. But it's true. It's true. A broken-hearted deity, a god on his knees, pleading with wretched, hell-deserving sinners to be reconciled. Here is humility. Here is humility. and let it be observed oh let it be observed that God beseeches God pleads God longs to do it in you and through you as if God did beseech you by us and I care not if you're a Sunday school teacher I care not if you're an office girl a housewife a lay preacher an evangelist, a minister here this morning, I cannot who you are, in your conversational witness, in your public declarations. Oh beloved, you never stand to speak for your master, you never stand to speak for your master, without recognizing first that authority of his commissioning word, and then that humility, that humility. God, God by Christ through the indwelling spirit in you. God beseeching, beseeching men to be reconciled. And I want to tell you, my friend, God has a broken heart and he can only speak through broken hearts. Have you a broken heart this morning? Only broken hearts reach broken lives. God beseeching. the basis of this truth of reconciliation, the burden of this truth of reconciliation. But I want to conclude this morning with a thought that catches up our convention and is also inconsistent sequence with this wonderful passage the basis, the burden, and now the blessing of this truth of reconciliation. Follow with me then as we go to verse 21, the blessing of the truth of reconciliation. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As is so characteristic of the great apostle Paul now soars to yet another climax. With the basis and burden of this truth revealed, he proceeds to describe to his readers what is the blessing of this truth of reconciliation. And set out in a simple form so that you may take it home with you, I want to put it in this way. If you know anything of that basis, your condition, God's provision, anything of that burden of the word, You have to preach in the way you have to preach. There's a blessing for you. But the blessing's wrapped up in two considerations I want you to take away and pause upon and pray over. First, that blessing comes through an exposed life. That blessing comes through an exposed life. And then secondly, an exchanged life. First, the blessing of the exposed life, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Our attitude to Christ, his gospel, and the life to which he has called us will never be divinely orientated until we understand the nature of sin. And there is nothing in the whole sweep of divine revelation which is calculated to expose sin as the 21st verse of this 5th chapter of the 2nd epistle of Paul to the Corinthians Paul tells us that Christ who knew no sin actually, actually was made sin for us he who could look an entire world in the face and say which of you convinceth me of sin knowing full well that angels, men and demons could never challenge him actually identified himself with this horrible, hideous thing called sin. In that one mysterious and awful act, he not only atoned for sin, but he exposed forever the degrading, the defeating, the damning nature of sin. How utterly unthinkable then, beloved, how utterly unthinkable that anyone should ever understand the truth of verse 21 and ever trifle again with sin. I can never understand that 21st verse without saying I am exposed as in relation to sin forever in my life. The blessing of the exposed life. Not so many many weeks ago I knelt with a dear man whose heart was utterly broken. For just a few days previously, he'd watched his beloved wife pass away after a torturous, torturous last few hours in the grip of cancer. And as that woman's eyes closed and she breathed her last Distorted with pain. He vowed a vow. He said God giving me grace. He said I'm going to yield everything I have. My time, my money, my interest. To fighting cancer. I'm joining any society. Whatever it is. For the eradication of cancer. Why was it? Because his beloved wife. His sweetest, his sweetest and his nearest friend in the world, his own beloved wife, his own flesh, died of cancer. I was broken with him. We wept together and we prayed. But you know, that stayed with me. That stayed with me. And as I was preparing this message, somehow or other, the Spirit of God brought that back to me. And I want to say in a far profounder way, God has shown me something. My best friend, my dearest friend, my most intimate friend, my blessed Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, died, died, made sin for me. Can I ever look at such an exposure of sin as that? Can I ever understand its nature and its damning and degrading and its defiling power. Can I ever see my blessed Savior being made sin for me and then trifle with sin again? Ever. Is that possible? And I want to say anyone, anyone, anyone who trifles with sin, anyone who argues the philosophy of the antinomianist of Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, has never been to Calvary in the deepest sense. No, you can never see that wretched thing, that hideous thing, that heinous thing. You can never understand Romans chapter 3, 23. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Without saying it's exposed forever. I don't care what the world says about it. I don't care how it's wrapped up in tinsel. I don't care what pleasures are attached to sin. I don't care if they're intellectual pleasures, emotional pleasures, sexual pleasures, material pleasures. I care not what pleasures are attached to sin. Sin is sin and unmasked. It's the cancer. It's the cancer. It's the cancer which caused my Savior to die. It's exposed once and forever. And I'm calling it the blessing of an exposed life. But thank God that isn't where it ends. With the exposure of sin, there is something else here. The blessing of the exposed life is matched by the blessing of the exchanged life. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now let it be pointed out that this mysterious exchange is only possible for those of us in this audience and those hearing my voice this morning who are in him. In him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ to achieve our reconciliation. But we must be in Christ to receive our reconciliation. Let me say that again. God was in Christ to achieve our reconciliation. But we must be in Christ to receive our reconciliation in all its fullness. But once we know this union of faith with Christ, we can experience the exchange life. Why? Because he becomes our righteousness. Paul has already touched upon this glorious truth in his first epistle where he says, But of him, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Christ, righteousness is not only imputed to us, but imparted to us. By his justifying mercy, righteousness is imputed. By his sanctifying mercy righteousness is imparted and we become partakers of his very holiness his righteousness and it's nothing less than Christ living again in us it's not a theological concept primarily it's a person Christ our righteousness now living in us moment by moment Peter puts it beautifully when he says who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we're healed To understand and appropriate what God has done for us on the cross not only secures release from the guilt and penalty of sin but redirects our lives permanently to live for righteousness. In fact, the classical Greek meaning of this word that we might be dead to sin is the departed life. It's used this once only in the New Testament. means that the life is departed and cannot be restored. Our old life is finished with. Henceforth these lives of ours, these bodies of ours, these personalities of ours are only the vehicles for the divine expression of his life in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The exchanged life. The exchanged life. The blessing of this truth of reconciliation. Not only the exposed life, no longer to live for sin, but the exchanged life to live only for God. The one one commits us to a, a sinnership, involves us to a sinnership before God. Ever and always, I recognize that I was the sinner who made Jesus die upon that cross. Paul could say it at the very end of his life, Christ died, he says, for our sins according to the scriptures. And again he could say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptations that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief even at the very end of my life. And right to the end of my life, I stand exposed and I thank God for the blessing of an exposed life that I, in and of myself, am a sinner. And God expects nothing more or less of me than the utter failure and the sin which nailed him to the cross. I can have no more to do with that. It's dead in God. I won't touch it again, but oh, the exchange life. Now he lives his life in me, his righteous life in me, moment by moment, through my eyes, through my lips through my mind through my hands through my feet through this personality of mine He lives in me What a challenge What a challenge Can we ever read these words study them understand them and most of all act upon them and ever be the same again Can we? Let us never forget the basis of our reconciliation the burden of it the word and the way we preach But most of all the blessing of this glorious truth in terms of holy living. Let us never cease to wrestle with this central doctrine of our Christian faith until it's God's call to action. God in Christ has wrought redemption by his reconciling grace and by virtue of his action he can save the human race. To achieve this great salvation And to clear sin's penalty Jesus took man's condemnation on the cross of Calvary. Such good news must now be spoken in a world of sin and shame and only through lives completely broken can we preach the glory of his name. The basis the burden, the blessing. Let us pray. So we prepare our hearts for the communion. And as we pause this one moment to let the impact and impression of the Holy Spirit. Effect our lives I'm going to ask that just where you sit here this morning you look up to the Savior's face and say Lord Jesus all this for me all this for me Therefore, Lord, henceforth, only for thee. Out there amongst the hills, my Savior died, pierced by those cruel nails, was crucified. Lord Jesus, thou hast done all this for me. Henceforward, I would live only for thee. Lord answer this prayer from every heart and seal home the message thou hast brought us. Prepare us to celebrate thy triumph in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. Then send us out as yielded men and women to proclaim the word of reconciliation. For that dear name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching,